So welcome to Masters of Automation podcast. And today's episode, uh, we have Eric Daimler. Uh, Eric, thank you very much for joining the podcast sessions. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, it's good to be here. So joining us today is an exceptional pioneer in the field of tech. Uh, Dr. Eric Daimler is an authority in artificial intelligence and robotics with over 20 years of experience uh, as an entrepreneur, investor, academic researcher, and policymaker. Uh, Daimler has co-founded six technology companies that have done pioneering work in the fields ranging from stored software systems to statistical arbitrage. He's been an integral part of the leadership team at Carnegie Mellon University's Silicon Valley campus, a presidential innovation fellow during the Obama administration, and most notably the chair, CEO, and co-founder of Connexus. Currently, he also serves on the board of directors at companies like Petum and Wellways Medical. He also served as assistant dean and assistant professor of software engineering in Carnegie Mellon. His academic research focuses on the intersection of machine learning, computational linguistics, and network science, which involves graph theory. He has a specialization in public policy and economists and helped launch Carnegie Mellon's actually Silicon Valley campus and founded this entrepreneurial management program. Uh, Eric Daimler advised the Obama administration on how to have conversations about AI. His work led to the creation of the AI office within the science advisory group of the White House, which has now become a cabinet level position, according to the president. So Eric is a walking encyclopedia about AI policy, and he shares all in this fascinating discussion about the future of tech, ethics, and society. So once again, welcome to Masters of Automation. It's a pleasure to have you um, to kick things off. Um, how, how you got into this space? Um, where did it all start? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's funny. That's a long time ago. But uh, I think it, it's just a, a, a series of, of fortunate circumstances. Uh, the, the old uh, adage that uh, you know, technology that is uh, built before you're, you're, you're 10 or 15 is, is background. It's kind of part of the firmament technology that's invented between the time you're, you're 10, 15, and 25 is technology you can build a a career on and, and technology built after you're 25 or 30 is against the law of nature. Um, you know, that, I think I just was fortunate to have, have fit in that time frame during one of the trendy waves of AI where, where I thought this was a terrific place to uh, potentially uh, bet, bet, my, bet my career on. And computers uh, inherently for me represented this uh, type of uh, freedom available to people uh, that could uh, release the, 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 we'll say the yoke of, of repetitive tasks. Uh, that, that's really what got me fascinated about it. It may, it may seem um, odd to people not in the field, but I, I, I thought that computers could help us become more human. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's a great narrative as well to, by eliminating the tasks and processes that we don't want to do and then that mundaneness that comes to it and and especially right now everyone's talking about generative ai and i think there's the aspect of how um like internet started and the data gets collected and then how to arrange that data how to organize that data and then understand and predict the data and now we're at the stage of really generate and converse with that data in ways that we can imagine, which is, which is, um, really impressive. So tying to that point, like you've been seeing that journey, uh, at first hand of evolution of the internet and tied to AI and, and the data, um, can you talk a little bit about where did it started? Where is it going and how, what led you to start Connexus? Uh, some of the issues that you've seen? You know, it's really hard to predict uh, uh, with any degree of specificity more than two to five years. I, I think if anybody's going to say what's going to happen in 10 years uh, with any degree of confidence uh, and, and not be 
blowing smoke. They're, they're going to be talking in these broad uh, generalities. Uh, and I, I remember working with, with somebody at, at IBM, and there's very you know, smart people there. Uh, back in 2000 or so, uh, you know, we had predicted with, with, with them the, the demise of, of web pages. Uh, you, know, you, you might have remembered their marketing campaign about essentially e-business. Uh, you know, they knew web pages would be diminishing uh, in value uh, and, and that they should be creating something else. But they couldn't have foreseen the app economy, right? They didn't know. They obviously missed it. You know, IBM, in many respects, is managing their own decline for the last generation. <laughs> but, uh, they uh, failed to see in specifics, you know, actionable specifics are what matter here, uh, you know, that there would be a job called app developer. And, you know, no one could foresee today in 2023 that there's now a job called influencer that uh, we, we see, uh, you know, around the planet, you know, kind of uh, affecting the places where we go on vacation. <laughs> we, you know, so uh, we can think of broad brushes, but uh, two to five years is generally uh, where to look. I can say that what's changed uh, from you know my early views in AI to now, you know it's not just the nomenclature where uh, you know we used to really call AI research, and then once it got solved, we would call it something else. So now and now people are throwing around the terms of artificial general intelligence, and somebody talked about super intelligence yesterday, which kind of hurts my brain. Uh, I you know, besides the nomenclature changing, uh, you know, over the past generation, you know what's changed is. The, the unforeseen implications of having massive amounts of data. You know, that, uh, that the world is moving more quickly, you know, people know, you know that the world is, is having a lot more data and data is the new oil is, is kind of background. Uh, but what's you know, less known is that there are a, a large number of data sources, really an exponential growth of data sources in addition to this exponential growth of data in absolute terms, that then creates this, this intersection of knowledge, uh, you know, data and data sources. And well, what does that mean? What's the model uh, that this data represents? That's the part that is hard to get one's head around. It's a combinatorial explosion. And, and the implications for that are, are just difficult to imagine uh, uh, very far out. That's what we're living with now. Uh, and that's what people are confronting now. Uh, in my world, you know, I, I worked in natural language processing for, for 10, 20 years. Uh, you know, we always thought that more data would be better, but we thought there would be a law of diminishing returns. Uh, what, what we didn't quite expect is the point at which we get diminishing returns was much, much, much bigger than we thought. You know, with with GTP four, the you know the the current uh, uh, LLM of the of our of our time, uh, uh, you know, using a trillion parameters, that was not what we had in mind in academia as as the place where uh, we should be aiming. We thought there were other parts of that technology stack uh, that that would also need to be coming along, but you know, a trillion parameters was it was beyond our our, our comprehension and. You know that we're seeing the the consequence of that today, which is that the the entities that can afford that sort of work is uh, uh, relegated more to corporations and to governments, of course, rather than academic institutions. You know that uh, Sam Friedman said that it costs something on the order of a hundred million dollars just to train GPT four, but you know what's what's less reported is the amount of electricity, just electricity, to power the computers. Uh, people have said it costs 10, 20, you know, $30 million just in electricity. Uh, you know, that, that's not something a university is throwing around uh, to be able to train these models. So that, that's the, the sense of what's changed. It's, it's the scale uh, in addition to this speed uh, that then generates this consequence of abruptness that I don't think we all talk about uh, uh, enough. Abrupt, the characteristic uh, of our modern times that that needs uh, more attention. Mm -hmm. it, 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 
Like, I would like to touch on the three things that you mentioned. Like, one of them, like, nobody knew about app developers before when it was coming. So then, and I think with the generative AI's emergence, the job market will get impacted, obviously, and then everyone is asking a lot of questions about that. And what are some of the potential roles that can come out of it? Like, um, I've been hearing prompt engineer, or, um, or like, there's a human in the loop mechanism to to help with reinforcement learning. And then there is the, and the different aspects of it, we tie the job creation to the user experience um, of like, I think a lot of people when they interact with chat GPT, they don't know that it's actually costed a lot of money and it did it. They don't know that it's, it can tell very different things to them, which are like hallucinations. Um, if, if they don't work. So like from a societal lens of it, like 1 trillion, like I think 63 billion uh, worth of parameters of neural network that cost a lot of money to build. And obviously it's going to shape the society in a different way and impact the job market and the things that we do, not on the level um, for just conversational, but also like the actual processes and tasks at the company. But there's also the impact of the data side of it um, as people generate more data in the internet and then ChatGPT is trained on the internet's data. So if they continue to retrain it with based on the generation that comes through, um, there will be a lot of um, bad data essentially out there. Um, so how do you see some of the implications on the society starting from maybe like a bit of the job market along with um, some of the algorithmic training that comes into play and the risks of um, like just data generation? Yeah, you're starting with the, the jobs. It's a real serious concern. I, I uh, think that we have a, a multifaceted problem uh, here. Uh, to be addressed in, in regulation, to be sure, for our own safety in ways that we've talked about and we can talk about uh, uh, some more. Uh, but we need to reevaluate what our societal employment contract is, essentially, because uh, we have not set uh, up expectations that uh, uh, our job could be eliminated uh, with such uh, speed. In the past, we have uh, acclimatized ourselves, I may say, to this idea that jobs can fade. Uh, you know, when elevator operators or switchboard operators uh, uh, were jobs that became automated, th those people didn't have to go find new work the next day. Uh, they just knew that the kids coming up wouldn't have those jobs uh, available. The, the speed of those Jo the job elimination uh, changed a little bit when you saw, for example, for, for example, floor traders on the New York Stock Exchange getting eliminated. That happened much more quickly. Uh, to someone that lived through that, uh, when, when we were automating parts of the job of a treasury bond trader, uh, we began to see the power of digital technology. Uh, which is very different than analog technology, such as a switchboard operator. When I can uh, do something digitally, uh, I'll, I'll work to have that routine repeat itself reliably until it, it is reliable uh, uh, more than a human. The nature of those things is that they don't work, they don't work, they don't work. And, but when they work, they work infinitely well. So I don't have to wait until Wednesday afternoon to get rid of the staff uh, that did my treasury bond trading. Uh, you know, there's just no reason to to have that team around uh, for another day. It's kind of the unfortunate consequence of, uh, uh, of developments in digital technology in that way. Uh, you know, we need to reevaluate you know, how we take care of people that for no fault of their own, if they're you know, living by the rules, uh, they, they they are you know, performing uh, you know, to, to society's expectations, and yet their job gets eliminated uh, with this abruptness. You know, how do we interact with that? That's a question we need to be uh, uh, addressing with, with, with more care. And, and to, to have people be a little 
um, uh, too confident about their own job being secure, I, I, I can remind us all that uh, you know we had thought that uh, initially jobs would be uh, automated doing with manual work. They'd be replacing manual work, and then they might come for some white collar work. And you know the last would be uh, creative work. What we found over the past six nine months is that it might be in reverse, uh, and so th that just may suggest to people that we don't know where this automation is going to uh, uh, be most useful and therefore where uh, jobs are going to be eliminated most uh, abruptly. So I would be careful for all of us not to get too uh, smug in the belief that our job is safe. And that may motivate us to have this conversation about how we uh, reevaluate the, the social contract uh, around, uh, around employment. Yeah, it's it's it is interesting because there's also the element of how can someone react to this? Like, for example, for someone who sees that their tasks are getting eliminated with ChatGPT or other type of LLMs, what was the next course of action for them at an individual level to do? Um, and then there's the obviously the other course of action that the government can do to help them and then create the rails for them to walk on, um, which, which comes next. So it's um, what are some of the things that you you think people can do? I mean, do you think with tr full democratization, like everyone would have? Um, a chat GPT account, but also maybe a part account, you know, there'll be a lot of competitors out there. And then, um, now we've seen that the, the first to innovate typically is not the first to scale. Um, so there could be other products out there that will be the norm <laughs> for people. Yeah. So what are some of your thoughts around this? Boy, you know, there's, there's really a lot to say here. Uh, you know, there are many other uh, uh, companies, entities, you know, getting on the bandwagon of creating LLMs and you know, creating even expressions uh, of LLMs. I think in the in the time we're talking in, in July 2023, uh, uh, the, 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 the general uh, reporting is that there's some, gosh, I think it was uh, uh, 16, but I think the number might be higher. Uh, I may have that number off. Like, it might be double or triple this number. There are 16 companies that have Series A funding valuations of over a billion dollars uh, doing doing LLMs. I mean, that's that's crazy money. Uh, uh, and, and because there's going to be a lot uh, to do in that space, but it's unclear that there's going to be 16 winners. <laughs> so I think the general sense is there might be four, and so yeah, that's a lot of cash uh, to burn through. You know, I, I was just talking last week to to this uh, organization who bought NVIDIA chips, uh, uh, just speculating that they would then have a team to use them. I mean, this is amazing. They spent $60 million on 5,000 uh, NVIDIA chips before they even had people that could use the chips. I mean, that that is a sign of, uh, uh, of something, <laughs> of something. <laughs> It's the uh, same as people buying uh, a lot of toilet, toilet papers during COVID. <laughs> I suppose. Okay. All right. You're creating toilet paper to NVIDIA chips. I like it. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's people getting, maybe getting ahead of themselves is, is how we can uh, uh, square that circle. I think it's um, uh, 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 really exciting place to be. You know, and you know, when I was working uh, with the Obama White House, I was yelling as loudly as I could to have people involved in the conversation about AI and how it affects society. But no amount of my nerdy self could uh, have the same impact as uh, ChatGPT has had in bringing people into the conversation. <laughs> you know, nothing like showing people uh, what what could happen in their world to to get them involved. Uh, with all that said. You know, these technologies are pretty immature. You know, the example with one of my companies was working with last week showed uh, uh, OpenAI and, and, and its, its expression in Bing and, and also Bard with this simple question. Plan for me 
uh, a trip to the L.A. Lakers basketball game, uh, the next L.A. LA Lakers basketball game uh, from San Francisco. I'm going to go from San Francisco to, the, to watch the L.A. Lakers in Los Angeles. Uh, the results we got from Bing uh, uh, said, well, there, there's a great game. Uh, in May 2023, and you know this is July 2023, so it's already telling, saying something in the past. And we know it's already trained to 2021, but um, it, it, clearly that's still just a failure mode. Uh, and Bard, uh, the, the smart people at Google, uh, they said, uh, uh, or their other their software in Bard said, well, there's a great game for the LA Lakers in February 2024. It was February 24th, I think, or 2024. Uh, and there was a couple of problems wrong with that. Not only was that not the next Lakers game. There is no Lakers game on February 24th, 2024. So it's made stuff up. Uh, so, uh, you know, as, as smart as we think these technologies are, and, and uh, even with a trillion parameters, uh, you know, there's a lot of weaknesses. This is really where I'd like people to focus. And, and the, the proverbial uh, Silicon Valley new, new thing. And I'm sitting here in San Francisco, and we always want to say, well, what's, what's next and next after next? And the next after next, the new, new thing is uh, uh, generative AI, but generative AI that you can bet your life on. There is a symbolic AI, kind of good old fashioned AI that we can use in cooperation with, in conjunction with uh, generative AI using probabilistic models that creates a hybrid. And it's in that hybrid that I think you will see most applications uh, uh, express themselves over the next five to 10 years. And this is right after I said, you know, not, I can't predict five to 10 years. I'm going to give a broad brush. The broad brush, five to yeah. 10 years, is we're going to have more of a hybrid AI. Uh, you're going to have probabilistic models, uh, uh, stochastic models, and deterministic models. Because with the examples I just gave you, you, you don't want to put uh, uh, even treasury bond trading into that model you know, let alone the management to your power plant, right? Yeah. You know, you can't have life critical applications with those sort of errors. And that's really foundational to large language models. You, you might be able to investigate protein folding, uh, which you know, certainly has some, some very important components to it, but you're not gonna build an airplane with it. That's foundational. You have to, bring in something else. And that other thing is a generative AI based on uh, uh, symbolic AI, uh, mm -hmm. expert system AI that can now scale from discoveries in mathematics. And that, that's what our little MIT spin out of Conexus AI uh, does. So Conexus AI uh, got spun out of MIT from a uh, discovery in math uh, in this domain called category theory uh, from this uh, professor, uh, Spivak, who's, who's one of my partners, uh, that then allows these systems to scale and be applied to uh, massive applications that you can bet your life on. Uh, merging that with these LLMs or other sorts of probabilistic models uh, is, is, is going to be the solution for large organizations uh, over mm -hmm. the next decade. What are some of the main problems that you see? Because so I've I've seen, I've seen the the hearing uh, for the Congress um, where Sam Altman spoke, and then and then there were different perspectives there about, you know, like the government or we should come up with regulations where government or an independent authority can monitor pre-processing and then post-processing the training data, and then and then report that. Um, and, and as, as someone who reported and worked in the White House with the president and, yeah. and the cabinet, yeah. what, where are, like, where, what are they not seeing? Like, do you think, like, what are some of the blind spots right now that can later evolve to be problematic for the society? And then, and then it's the same way as social media did, right? Like with like heavy on advertisement and, and whatnot. Um, I can elaborate more on that point, but uh, what, 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 what are some of your thoughts, especially around like what are people not seeing? Because I think we are seeing that that the LLMs need to be improved, and then there are hallucinations; they're not, they cannot be fully trusted mm -hmm. right now. Um, 
we do need to monitor it more. So there's that emphasis by all the founders out there uh, and, and even big authorities. And, and there's all, always the worry that I've been seeing in the news is that does the government understand about AI enough to regulate it? Um, and then, and then there's the worry about if they do, then what would be the future implications of current restrictions? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I wrote an open letter, uh, you know, during my time, uh, you know, right before I left, kind of uh, as a uh, as a um, as a prescription of my recommendations to the next administration, uh, where there were actually some in the in the world of AI in my domain, kind of in the science advisory group, there were some very smart people, well-meaning people, over the last uh, uh, five six years, uh, and, I, and I did it again uh, as an open letter to the current. Uh, administration, where again, there's some very, uh, very smart people in my group, you know, that's what I can speak to in, in science advisory. So I actually have a good amount of confidence in uh, the the right people being in the right jobs there. Uh, and I also am pretty optimistic about the staff, uh, you know, if not the, uh, the congressional staff, if not the Congress uh, people and the senators themselves. Uh, in understanding or, or looking to understand more of this technology. You know, I, I think that we can add uh, some nuance uh, to this, that there's not regulation or not regulation. You know, I think what, one thing we missed in the, the debacle that was uh, social media uh, and the obvious dangers around, around misinformation and encouraging tribalism that uh, social media engendered is that uh, we can do something uh, you know, besides just restrict uh, uh, behaviors uh, as an interim step. And the example I, I give to taking off on, on part of what you said is that we can at least evaluate some of these algorithms. So we, we, first of all, we would be well served to separate out research from the expressions of research. You know, one of the misguided uh, 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 interpretations of that open letter to, to stop AI uh, work was hmm. uh, it, it conflated uh, research with uh, commercial uh, offerings. Uh, it also was was quite thin uh, on uh, not on recommendations uh, of any sort besides just stop. Uh, and and certainly there's a lot of people that have some skepticism uh, about the uh, conflicting interests of the some of the participants in that letter, signatories to that letter, uh, and. Uh, even the conflicting interests of some of the people that are advocating for regulation, because historically that can just entrench the the leading players of that moment. So, all that said, we can go back to what we could do in the <clears throat> in the short term that will just give us some uh, flexibility for the future, while educating us all about what we want to have happen for society. It could go like this: that algorithms can be submitted to a, uh, a third party for evaluation. You, you can either have the, the intricacies of that algorithm inspected by experts like myself, you know, a group of experts like myself to, to evaluate, it, does this do what it says it, it would do? Uh, 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 or you could uh, do something like a, a, a zero trust uh, evaluation, much like we do with credit scoring. We don't know what's actually inside the credit scoring algorithms. We just know that we have fed it data enough times with output that seems to correlate to what we want uh, as a society that we generally allow for these black boxes to exist called, called credit scoring algorithms. We, we could start that process now, especially for some of the most critical functions uh, upon which these AI algorithms uh, are placed. And we can do that you know, not in a heavy handed way, you know, at first that could just be uh, uh, re just revealing the outcomes, you know, without actually being any sort of restriction on these sort of things, you know, you, you know call that whatever you will, but it doesn't need to necessarily be uh, regulation in the way that we, we might think about restrictions being imposed on by, the, by the government. And in any case, you know, we, we're going to need to do something. Uh, because this is a global conversation. Uh, uh, we want to find uh, that balance and therefore be part of the conversation. What we have found from social media 
is that doing nothing is is not a really good uh, a good path to go down. Yeah, and, and there's the part of the open source community. So I've been viewing a lot about um, what are the like people doing with these LLMs, or how can I mean, obviously it's very expensive to spin off a chat GPT or, um, or an LLM as powerful as them. But there's been a lot of activity in the open source community that just takes part of LLM and then find an application to it, uh, whether that's a Chrome extension to write how to do a LinkedIn post, but also a Chrome extension to be able to then scan videos and then give reports on um, like sentiment and whatnot. So there's been a lot of applications like that, but how um, I think the open source community and then like the network effects within the communities um, really scale some of these ideas. And then that's also the part of, I think, ChatGPT's success that people spoke about it a lot. And we see Sam Altman being an ex-president of Y Combinator really understands about network effects and, <laughs> and how to scale a business. And so like when it comes to that open source community, and, and what can come out of it? Because essentially any user from any country can leverage those models and today generate an output, paraphrase that output, and then release it and on, again on the internet. And I think that can lead to more maybe misinformation and also better information, like access to knowledge in good ways as well. Um, so there's obviously pros and cons, but as, as, as we are seeing this scale, there's the corporate section of it where the, the government speaks to open AI, Microsoft's and Google of the world, but how can, how can it also speak to the open source community? Like, what are some of your thoughts around, um, maybe not only regulation, but understanding the behaviors of differences. Yeah, I think we're going to need to just account for the idea that uh, this technology can grow in ways that are hard to imagine. Uh, that's just consistent with the zeitgeist of the open source community. Uh, and so I, in this case, I don't necessarily separate out the open source community from the activities of anybody else. It's just the nature of a, uh, an organized group of motivated, smart people. Uh, uh, that, that we've been able to put a word around uh, that, that uh, we're going to expect more data provenance uh, to be built into these uh, systems. We're going to expect more data lineage to be built into these systems. In, in some areas, they could be in the, in the form of digital watermarks. Uh, uh, that, that term might be something people don't understand even as we apply it uh, to other domains that, that may not be uh, as visual, where the sources of these data uh, ultimately need to be tracked down to a place uh, that we respect. It's really quite strange when we think about our current world. Uh, there's a lot out there that, that we will read uh, day to day that uh, we are trusting, uh, uh, have, having been based in some source data, uh, often just because of the uh, the particular brand of the media uh, that we're following. But outside of those areas, uh, there's a lot that we just read uh, that, yeah. has, that has no, <laughs> no, no facts. And, 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 you know, even as a scientist, we, we are careful not to be too smug about that because we'll have uh, a lot of scientific papers that certainly can be peer-reviewed but are uh, often never repeated. Uh, so the veracity of the... Uh, the, the research itself may not be as, as solid uh, as, as we would sometimes uh, apply in these little 30-second, one-minute sound bites uh, we'll, we'll get on media to be representing uh, any sort of scientific finding. So I, I think we, we will uh, just need to respect the idea that there'll be this uh, uh, infinite range of expressions uh, available. Uh, and that is expressed itself right now in the computing power, where uh, in the example I gave earlier, you know, $60 million worth of NVIDIA chips is what is going to be applied to the training of, of a new LLM. Uh, once that's trained and we know the weights for the, the ultimate result, you know, I, I could probably run that thing on my phone. Uh, so 
the, you know, the, the applications for that LLM uh, are, are going to be democratized, you know, just by, by, by their nature. And I am a little hesitant to then prescribe any sort of restrictions on that. I, I would really want to see where that could uh, take us. Yeah, I, re I recently seen a paper. Um, I, I don't remember on top of my head who it was written, but apparently it can, it theoretically an LLM can consume about like 1 billion tokens. Um, and then, and it was speaking about that, that the scale that it can lead to, obviously over time, the costs are going to be down for, uh, especially on the chips. Um, and then another processing power is going to increase. Maybe there'll be some, um, cross section with, uh, quantum computing as well. Um, and then, and then obviously things are going to get cheaper and also provide more ability to digest more content um i'd like to ask you about some some of your perspectives on identity confirmation so as uh, so this discussion came up in, in in one of my previous podcast episodes um and and my guest speaker tatiana moment was saying that um as we as the technology is intermediary between the communication of the people um how do we make sure that who we speak to um, and, and then obviously there's the element of text generation and then the voice generation and then the image generation, video generation, and that have great positive impact, obviously, for certain business cases. But the discussion comes in at the point which when we can simulate everything, how can we make sure the identity stays the same? And I just wanted to quickly throw in there to, to see what some of your perspectives. Yeah, yeah my, my perspective is that I can get frightened pretty, pretty easily uh, by this. You know, it, it the, the sophistication is, is such that, uh, you know, we're no longer concerned about uh, my, my media being biased or being in a bubble or, or, you know, twisting my beliefs, which it has kind of manifestly does uh, uh, that we, we pretend that we're uh, conscious and aware of it. Uh, the, the new distortion is, is going to come from uh, my ability to uh, generate these nefarious use cases where uh, I, I can simulate uh, uh, the voice of somebody in my family, uh, give it a heuristic, uh, uh, learn everything there is to know about me, learn, learn the voice of them a family member, you, know, you have a heuristic saying, uh, convince Eric to vote for this person or buy this person uh, or buy this thing uh, uh, and, and then, and then uh, have that be really customized to be convincing me, you know, from somebody I trust and then repeat that 20 million times over 20 million people. You know, that's frightening uh, and that's, that's going to be possible. How I combat that uh, is unclear today in a specific sense, but I think I can say that uh, over the next couple of years, I've seen some technologies that look promising that will give us uh, a personal AI to combat these nefarious AIs. I think we're going to have a, a, a digital agent that is going to follow us around to help us interact with this nasty, emerging nastiness that we're going to see around the world. Uh, you know, cut coming at us. You know, it's a it's a different uh, type of spam. Uh, uh, we might say it's a different level of sophistication of spam, uh, and, and we're going to have to adopt those. And the people that don't adopt those are going to be the ones that are most vulnerable. That's the the type of education I think that needs to happen. That's that's probably actually the scarier part for me than the technology, which is that we just need to we'll be needed to educate themselves to protect uh, everyone. You know, from from these uh, uh, these these new manipulations, that's mm -hmm. and that that speaks to this this identity uh, concern for which there's a lot of uh, technical exploration as solutions. Yeah, it sounds like there's the like the cybersecurity itself will have to also evolve to to adhere to the changes that are happening in the in the market and 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 I do have a question. So let's see. So it's it's interesting to think right now. There's obviously 
the internet is vast. There are very different data lakes and then different data, like vector databases to like classical databases and whatnot. And a classical enterprise uh, typically is not obviously as um, as progressive, right? Like maybe as not ready to integrate even a simple LLM today um, to their knowledge management system. Um, so, so just thinking a little bit of, of tying this to Conexus and then in the work that um, you've been doing uh, with, with the MIT professor and whatnot, how, how does the, some of the problems that you solve today uh, help those customers to be, um, I don't want to say digital transformation, but how help those customers to, to be more innovative and then, and then be more up to speed with the current tech stacks? You know, it's a it's a perfect uh, uh, direction to go in the conversation. Connexus AI was was founded on on the premise that these systems will become too large for us to reason about. The, the the generating problem came in two places. One was the the U.S. supply chain. You know, way before we appreciated the vulnerabilities that we experienced during COVID, uh, it was identified that much of the supply chain within the United States, therefore the world uh, was manual and presented a certain vulnerability, not vulnerability necessarily in security, although it has that, but a vulnerability in its rigidity, uh, uh, a vulnerability in its uh, uh, ability to scale, you know, the, the throughput because of all these places that databases don't interact. The, the other motivation that that uh, originally uh, seeded this, this technology spin up from MIT was uh, around the defense uh, of, of the United States and its uh, allies, uh, particularly on, on some airplanes where the, the, there was something like north of a million parts involved in this airplane. Uh, and the concept was, uh, uh, how, did we, how do we take what we learned from the last airplane and apply it to this airplane? And how do we guarantee the integrity, just the security integrity, let alone the technical integrity of the million suppliers you know, of this airplane. Uh, it, it's just, you know, we can't reason about that. No, there's no, there's no one person obviously smart enough and you can't put that in Excel. You know, it's, it's too big. Right? <laughs> so the, you, 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 it, it doesn't take anybody, uh, you know, I might, I might like to think of myself as a smart, but like I don't need to be that smart to think, oh, this probably is a problem that's going to apply to other organizations over the next 10 years, right? If, if, if these two, broadly speaking, organizations uh, uh, consider this to be a problem back when we, we spun out of MIT in the, in the mid-2010s, uh, what's it going to look like in the, in the 2020s to, uh, to a large organization across the globe? So that's what Connexus AI was developed to do. It was developed to bring together databases and data models, knowledge, uh, into uh, a universal view that, that people could then reason about themselves. So we apply an AI to the discovery of the common data and data models uh, around an organization. You know, the implications for this are not just the ability to more quickly take advantage of opportunities that emerge from signals given you know, across, uh, across an organization, uh, but it also provides some answer to your security questions that we, we talked about earlier, which is how you guarantee the integrity of an identity. Well, you know, first of all, you can look across the the, the panoply of touch points uh, for that identity to, to guarantee that this is consistent with what's been seen so far. You know, many vulner uh, data vulnerabilities come because they're, they're isolated and they, they don't communicate with other parts uh, of a larger system in order to be validated. Uh, so that's what part of what Connexus AI does is uh, allows leadership to uh, uh, better view the command and control of increasingly large organizations. Uh, it also allows for uh, a speed of execution uh, in, in, in a range of opportunities from, from just the technical cloud migrations going more quickly 
to uh, data integration systems uh, from application upgrades being able to ex be executed uh, more quickly and take advantage uh, of opportunities. We're, we are replacing these, these technologies such as RDF and OWL, which were attempts at scaling database integration in the early, 20, uh, early 2000s uh, that have just shown to be inadequate to the, the scale at which we're operating today in 2023. I think there's also like two elements that are really important because I think the data, so there's the part of the knowledge management, especially with the moves with LLM, people will want to feed that to a generative AI or LLM model to create conversational interface to communicate with that knowledge better. And then there's the other part to understand the current underlying organi organization's processes, business processes that engage on. And then I mean, there's some process mining players out there that scan the IT systems to be able to to design a process graph based on the repetitions of event logs. Um, so it, it is definitely where the companies are lacking because they don't have the transparency into what's going on in the business, but also they are unable to move fast to integrate with the current innovative technologies like the, like the generative AI and, uh, and enable their users and customers to better interfaces whether that's through products and not. Um, and, and obviously it's some of it is also because of, again, there's a lot of players out there um, and then everyone has a, like a different solution for databases. And then that solution is like somebody buys a vectorized database and then buys another type of database, another type of database, like an SAP, an Oracle, and then everyone is, uh, doesn't know what is going on in the business at that point anymore. And so, so it definitely sounds like it is something extremely applicable uh, for the future and then allow a company to innovate more. Um, and and, and uh, tying that to a little bit, um, um, to, to obviously the future of it, right? Like I know we said 10, not 10 years, but two years, <laughs> maybe three years. Uh, so as, as, so I think with every disruptive innovation, there are new companies forming and then there, and with that comes, um, old companies evolving, uh, maybe like SAPs of the world. I've seen an interesting, uh, business case, um, by Morgan Stanley. So they've adopted open AI, um, to within their wealth management and enabled access to, um, all the, um, like wealth managers are working and then all of the knowledge access to that. And so like any wealth manager who wants to know, okay, hey, where we, where did we succeed? Uh, my client has X, Y, Z requests. And it, it gives them that intel very quickly. And obviously to get there, they need to do those two to three things uh, first. Um, so some, what are some of your thoughts around um, getting there? Right, like what can they do um, as, as companies to be able to more innovative and then meet, and then ride this wave a little bit? You know, it's a it's an easy answer for me because I'm going to say <laughs> Connexus AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I know, I know. But more from the like industry level, industry perspective. Yeah. On, I mean, the, the the Connexus AI integrates data uh, and integrates databases. Uh, you know, if you're developing an airplane uh, and you have a data model for a wing and a data model for a fuselage and a data model for an engine, you know, you, you have this, this common variable called vibration. You, you know, you can't just merge them, right? Because what happened to the variable called vibration? You know, this is a real industrial application. Uh, uh, you know, and, and today what we have lost much of the formal methods training that has gone into the development of the fuselage or the engine when it then comes time to scale. So you have to uh, apply, you know, if it's not Connexus AI, you have to apply some other modern type of generative AI that's, that's not probabilistic, that's not stochastic. You know, you don't wanna then rely on probabilities for joining the wing to the fuselage uh, and the engine to the wing. It doesn't, uh, uh, it, it doesn't help you uh, reduce the, the chance of these catastrophic failures. 
you know, NASA's now doing this uh, in the development of their rockets. What they say is that over the past generation since the beginning of NASA, their large projects take a decade. They recognize that they can no longer afford that length of development with technology moving so fast. The result of their old way of doing it means that by the time they finish a project, it's obsolete. You know, there's many stories about this. There were stories, you know, even in World War II for weapon systems that were designed uh, and, and deployed after the need was uh, uh, long, long since gone. Uh, so the way in which these companies need to respond at the largest level, but, but progressively smaller and smaller organizations is to have their databases uh, interact with each other. That's, that's really fundamentally the answer. That's the easy way of saying it. Uh, it, it you can get more technically complex, but <clears throat> your databases need to talk to each other. When databases talk to each other, you can have knowledge sharing, you can have collaboration, you can then act more quickly, and you can develop more quickly. You can respond to problems more quickly. You know, NASA's goal is to bring that 10-year development cycle for complex projects down to uh, a couple of years. And that's, that's where they need to go. They need, and this, is, this is fast iteration in action. This is what it's going to look like. For, for many companies. And, and that that's going to apply for any company more than, gosh, I'm going to say any any company that has more than maybe three to five databases. You know, whatever those databases are. They could have a customer database. They can have a manufacturing database. They can have their financial database. Any more than, and than three to five databases, they're going to find that, that data integration broadly, databases uh, talking to each other, is where they're going to find the advantage in speed, uh, execution, uh, and reliability. Yeah, that, and that, 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 that answers my question really well, I think, for, um, for, for, for the businesses, especially who wants to be more innovative and adopt the innovative technologies out there. They will have to innovate themselves first and then their operations first when it comes to IT um, and, and broad. Um, so I know we are almost out of time, but um, I, I do have one last question, uh, which is more on the philosophical side. Um, so it's a... So we've seen a lot of um, books like, um, you know, like there's the Brave New World, there's the uh, West World, <laughs> there's the 1984s. So there's a good depiction of um, a dystopian world. And obviously there are also great depictions of utopian worlds. Um, but in what is recurrent in both of these is the, is the ability to create consciousness or replicate consciousness that can either speak as ourselves or speak independently as someone else. So like a simple example of it is um, ChatGPT asking ChatGPT to write a poem like Shakespeare does about a certain topic. So in a way it's able to oneself and then, and then, and then allow them to be maybe Two angles, immortal, <laughs> or um, or there's the fraud part of it as well. <laughs> if if it hallucinates, it's obviously not great. Um, but do you think as the as the future unfolds, and and I know we said two to ten years, but let's say you're infinite, um, the humanities need to be mortal and then create this external intellect. How would that define our evolution of doing things? Um, I know it's an open-ended question and a philosophical one, so if <laughs> you answer the way you like to. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure I have any special expertise to be able to answer uh, that you know, ac excellent line of inquiry. Uh, I, I can offer uh, a few things, which is that you know people will often talk about me when I was in the White House about uh, the degree to which we would have a utopia or, or a dystopia uh, consistent with some Hollywood narrative. Uh, and the, the answer I gave then, I still believe now, which is it's up to us. Uh, you know, the, where we are on that spectrum is up to us. Uh, you know, one of the values of studying history 
is, uh, isn't in just discovering names and dates. It's in the realization that our current world didn't have to be this way. It wasn't inevitable that we turned out this way in all of its expression, that we have these series of events that, uh, uh, turned out the way they did, that all contributed to the world in which we now live in, in, in all respects. That gives, should give us all this, this, this new feeling of agency about how we can participate in the conversation about the future we want to leave to uh, our, our children, to the future generations. Mm-hmm. The, 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 and the degree of consciousness these computers have, I you know, in one sense can be uh, uh, entertaining, but in another sense, it can kind of miss the point because uh, way before we get consciousness, some very scary things can happen. <laughs> you know, as seen by the manipulation uh, by uh, social media, where we all will become smaller in some sense in our, in our ability to consume uh, other viewpoints uh, around the world. You know, I, I, I was just reminded by one of my friends, Nita Farahani, uh, her book, The Battle for Your Brain. Uh, she's, she is a professor, actually, of law and philosophy. Uh, and that's a book I could encourage uh, people to get, besides, besides my forthcoming book, which isn't out yet, <laughs> and my wife's book, uh, which is on organizational uh, uh, structure and how to operationalize culture, uh, reculturing, I can recommend The Battle for Your Brain. Because uh, that's the type of book that 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 is suggestive of uh, the dangers we have now, way before sentience, way before AGI, way before uh, artificial superintelligence, uh, where we can we need to be involved in the conversation. I, I can say one more thing about sentience itself. You know, there's. I was just um, talking to one of my friends about the the degree to which forecasters can. Uh, uh, think that there is a less than 1% chance of AI producing uh, an existential threat to humanity uh, over the next decade. That's still pretty high. You know, less than 1% doesn't really make it. Right? Uh, but I can, I can give people like maybe some comfort that it's not going to happen anytime soon. And not just because of me telling, telling you that, that me and my friends don't think it's going to happen over the next 20 years or, or, or maybe ever. It's that, uh, I, what we know about thinking isn't uh, really represented in computers. Uh, you know, you can't, you, you or anybody can't tell me or anybody I know, you know, how to program a brain. We just don't know. We don't know who it is that's staring through our eyes. We don't, we don't know how to then program that up uh, uh, into a, what a computer would recognize that, that we have a voice in our head. Like, ah, who's that talking in our, in our head? The, the, the way of representing it in a computer is really ultimately deterministic. The chip is ultimately deterministic, even though the computer languages can have uh, 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 stochastic elements. The chip is ultimately uh, deterministic. It's probably no accident that we both have, we as human beings have a biological system with a probabilistic brain and a deterministic nervous system working in conjunction. We don't really have one without another, right? We don't have brains operating without a nervous system. We don't have nervous systems, obviously, working without a brains. I, I suspect that whenever we get sentience, you will find that expression take more of a biological form. And we are just way off from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's way ahead in the future, especially to since the AI can't even tell when the next Lakers game is. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Yeah, and, and, uh, you know, it, it's been said that you know how will the, the battle of robots w- will be very difficult because we won't be able to determine who are the robots and who are who are ourselves. Uh, you know, one way of interpreting that is that we will start to uh, augment our own bodies with progressively more sophisticated devices. So we will our, we will just transform ourselves rather than some Terminator figure uh, uh, looking like us and eliminating us. 
Yeah, I think that would be quite interesting. And at that point, and I know there's some discussion on Elon Musk and and and, and his company on testing on um, maybe some robotics integrations. But I think uh, maybe maybe that will be a discussion for another time that I that I will want to cover. That's it. I want to be cognizant of your time as well. Um, so this was fantastic episode and and it was very thought provoking, right? Like I said, very current events as well. And then we touched on some um, of the most um, important aspects of AGI, AI, and actually um, how to get there along with uh, obviously the philosophical aspects of it, the regulative aspects of it how the governments are viewing on it. So once again, thank you very much. to the next And again, always, uh, we'll have an open invitation to come back again <laughs> anytime. Thank you. Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you very much, Eric. Stop the recording.